You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. They say there is nothing worse than the death of a child. God willing, you will never know the grief and anguish of losing someone who should, by rights, outlive you. Kimberly Turnquist learned what this is like, learned what it is to bury your child. She also had the added grief of her husband being named a person of interest in the death of her daughter. When you thought her days couldn't be darker, Kimberly's family took sides, choosing the word of the police over the word of her husband, the father of her youngest child. Kimberly has an open wound in her heart, the loss of her daughter, and she endures it without the loving support of her family. We need to go back. Back to a time when Kimberly was a mother of three girls. To a time before she met a grief that is soul-crushing and endless. Our story takes us to Monroe, Michigan, a place we visited. If you recall James Cooper, who disappeared in 1996, or the Chelsea Brook case, we were in Monroe then for a big Halloween party. The death of Julia Neiswender was mentioned during the Chelsea Brock episode because Julia's twin sister, Jennifer, is friends with Chelsea's sister, Cassandra. We also return to Ypsilanti. If you listen to episodes 48 and 49, The Michigan Murders, on serial killer John Norman Collins, Ipsy was his hunting ground. Whatever the season, Mod Cloths got you covered. Snag a new swimsuit for that summer getaway or a cute cardi for those first signs of fall. Mod Cloths signature line of apparel comes in a full size range from extra, extra small to 4X. So it's never been easier for you to find your perfect fit. Need a little outfit advice? Just reach out to their amazing team of Mod Stylists for free sizing fit, and styling help. Effortlessly transition between seasons with summer styles that stay perfectly preserved for fall. Go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code GONE at checkout to get 30% off your order of $100 or more. Snag your next style obsession at ModCloth. Julia and Jennifer Nicewender were born to Kimberly Nicewender in January of 1989. Kimberly was a young single mother, but with the support of her family and her willingness to work hard, she did right by her girls. When the twins were in grade school, Kimberly met and married James Turnquist. Kimberly and James would have a child of their own, another daughter, Madison. James fills the role of father for the twins, and the family is close. The family of five shares a modest home in Monroe, Michigan. Kimberly's twins call him dad, and they often help out at his cleaning business or go with him to the martial arts studio where he practices and sometimes teaches classes. The twins, Julia and Jennifer, graduated from Monroe High School in 2008. Both girls go on to college. Their mother, Kim, raised them with a work ethic, and both girls got jobs while in high school. 
Julia worked at the local Walmart and picked up other jobs when she could to help pay for school and rent on her apartment. She shared a unit at the Peninsular Place Apartments in Ypsilanti. At the end of 2012, Julia Nicewender was midway through her junior year at Eastern Michigan University. Julia was a communications major, and her dream was to be a television news reporter. She was hardworking, cheerful, and more than one friend commented on her loud and genuine laugh. Julia was working hard on her goal of being a broadcaster. The first week of November 2012, Julia went on a class trip to New York City where she toured the NBC News studio. Also, during this whirlwind tour of the city, Julia met and took pictures with her idol, Anderson Cooper. In early December 2012, the school term is winding down. Students are preparing for final exams and thinking about the holidays and winter break. On the first weekend of December, the Nicewender Turnquest family gathers around their Christmas tree, their first live Christmas tree, to decorate it together as a family. They're excited about the upcoming holiday because their grandparents, Kim's mom and dad, will be visiting from Florida celebrating the holiday together again. Sunday, December 9th, Julia is working her shift at Walmart. Her twin, Jennifer, who still lived at home, brought their younger sister to the store to see Julia on her break. This is the last time the sisters would see Julia alive. The evening of December 9th, Julia calls her dad, Jim Turnquist. Christmas is just two weeks away, and she wanted to know what her kid sister was hoping to receive. The conversation was relaxed, normal. Julia didn't seem upset, nor did she share any concerns with Turnquist. That evening, about 10.30 p.m., Julia texted with her sister and one of her roommates. This is the last contact that anyone has with Julia. The morning of Monday, December 10th, Julia was supposed to work with her stepdad, helping on a cleaning job, but Julia is a no-show. When James Turnquist cannot reach her, He calls Jennifer, who tells him that she thought Julia was supposed to work at Walmart on Monday, which is probably why she didn't show up. The evening of Monday the 10th, Julia misses her work holiday party. She also misses calls from her mother and didn't respond to texts from her sister. Now, Julia's mother was waiting on test results for a pretty serious health issue. Fortunately, the results were normal. Kim Turnquist was healthy. But for Julia not to check in or return her mother's call with the good news, that's out of character. The morning of Tuesday the 11th, as one of her roommates leaves for work, she can hear Julia's alarm going off. She figures Julia's in the shower or sleeping through the alarm, so the roommate leaves the apartment. Since you're listening to Already Gone, it means you love a good story. Let me tell you about another good story, a new podcast, Deliberations. What happens inside the jury room when they deliberate a case? How many times have you seen the outcome of a trial and wanted to know what went on in the jury room? How did they reach that verdict? This podcast brings you inside the jury room. It helps you understand the process by which guilt and innocence are determined. In each season of deliberations, a controversial murder trial is scripted and recorded, then played for a jury of improvisers who react, debate, 
and argue their opposing interpretations of evidence. You can listen to the Deliberations podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Again, that's Deliberations. It's one of my favorites. You should check it out. Let's talk about Peninsular Place, the apartment complex Julia called home. I looked at the website for Peninsular Place. It's a three-story apartment building designed specifically for college students. Julia's unit had a shared living room, dining area, kitchen, plus in-unit laundry, but each bedroom had a private entrance leading to a mini suite with a sleeping area, walk-in closet, and a private bath. You could have as much or as little contact with your roommate as you like. The building will also match you with the roommate, or you can choose your own. It appears that Julia was matched with her roommates and wasn't sharing the apartment with close friends. Knowing this, it's not concerning that Julia's roommate hasn't seen her for a couple days. The living setup made it easy not to see someone, especially if your schedule didn't sync up with theirs. On Tuesday evening, December 10th, Kim gets a call from one of Julia's co-workers at Walmart. Julia missed the party Monday night and didn't show up for her shift on Tuesday. When Kim checks with her daughters and her husband, no one has spoken with or heard from Julia since Sunday night. Kim is concerned and places a call to the Ypsilanti police explaining the situation and requesting a welfare check. Julia's family is in Monroe, which is about 35 miles or 56 kilometers from the Ypsilanti apartment. Ypsilanti police respond to Julia's apartment around 9.30 p.m., They enter the unit and access her locked suite. They find Julia's bedroom in disarray, drawers pulled open, items strewn on the floor. When they check the bathroom, they discover Julia's body, face down in a tub of water. Police took all the right steps here, securing the crime scene, contacting the coroner, notifying Eastern Michigan University administration. After they requested the welfare check, Kim and Jennifer drove up to Ypsilanti with a family friend, while Jim and their daughter Madison followed in Jim's car. On the ride to the apartment, Kim gets a call from an emergency medical technician asking if Julia has any medical issues they should be aware of. Kim tells him that her daughter and herself suffer from vasovagal syncope, which causes fainting because your body overreacts to certain triggers. Kim asks if her daughter is okay, and the EMT says that he will have to call her back. When Kim arrives at the apartment complex and sees the police cars and ambulance out front, its lights off, not flashing, Kim's heart drops. Her thought that Julia was hurt turns to thoughts of something darker, a mother's premonition. Kim and Jennifer race inside, up to Julia's apartment, but an officer stops them and breaks the news. Her daughter... Jennifer's twin sister, is deceased. Kim's grief explodes in anger and she rages through the apartment, tearing down holiday decorations and sobbing. As her husband arrives, he sees his wife in crisis and doesn't allow Madison into the apartment. It's Jennifer who breaks the news, that their beloved sister is gone. Now, police noted that Julia's suite was locked. I'm not sure what that means without seeing the locking mechanism. Is it one of those locks where you turn a button and then pull the door closed, locking it behind you? 
or do you have to lock it manually, using a key to lock the door as you leave? Could her killer have been invited in and locked up on their way out? In 2012, there is no video surveillance of the building. The one camera providing security is focused on the manager's office. When police take a cursory inventory of Julia's room, they realize that her apartment keys are missing from the lanyard where she kept them. Missing from her bed is a zebra-striped pillowcase, perhaps taken by the perpetrator to collect items from her room. They note that while some items are missing from her bedroom, many valuables are left behind. The condition of her suite had all the hallmarks of a home invasion, but her computer, iPod, flat-screen television, and several wrapped Christmas presents were left behind. Julia's purse is still there, wallet and credit cards untouched. Could the robbery have been staged? Late Tuesday night, Eastern sends a blast to students, warning them of the death near campus. Eastern wants to handle this the right way, because they've been in trouble previously. In 2007, Eastern was fined $350,000 by the Department of Justice for a Cleary Act violation. This was regarding the on-campus murder of Laura Dickinson, a student who was raped and murdered in her Eastern Michigan dorm room in December 2006. The university kept details of her death quiet, not announcing that she was the victim of a crime until after the arrest of the perpetrator, another EMU student named Orange Taylor III, on February 23, 2007. February 22nd was the last day that students could withdraw from classes without penalty. It goes without saying that students and families were outraged that this information was held from them for more than two months, and that once the information was made public, students were locked into paying for their classes. If you are interested in learning more about the Cleary Act, we cover Origins of the Cleary Act on a Patreon-only mini-sode. In the days following the discovery of Julia's death, few details are made public, only that she was found in a bathtub and foul play is suspected. The weekend of December 14th, friends, family, and fellow students attend candlelight vigils for Julia, not only on the eastern campus, but in her hometown of Monroe. On Monday, Julia Catherine Neiswender is laid to rest in the Erie Union Cemetery, after services at the Redeemer Fellowship Church in Monroe. If you think Erie Union is a strange name for a cemetery, Remember that Monroe, Michigan sits right on Lake Erie. A week after her death, and there is still no official cause of death for Julia, but her death is labeled suspicious. Police, the coroner, and her family await lab results so they can learn what really happened to the likable college student. Christmas comes and goes. The holiday is marked, but not really celebrated by those who loved her. 2013 arrives, and the cold fury of a Michigan winter comes with it. In late January, a combination memorial and 24th birthday party for Julia and her twin, Jennifer, who is soldiering on without her best friend and other half. Still, no official word on Julia's death, no arrests, no additional information. The Turnquist Nicewender family is impatient, frustrated. It won't be until the end of January that an announcement is made. Julia was asphyxiated until she was unconscious, then placed face down in a bathtub full of water where she drowned. During the asphyxia, 
Julia bites her tongue several times. The bites are deep as she struggled to free herself and take a breath. While they don't share these details with the public, her family knows that Julia was nude, her clothing cut away except for the one sleeve of her shirt. Her cell phone was placed in the tub. It's found beneath her body, but they aren't certain if it was tossed in the tub first or thrown in as an afterthought and made its way beneath her in the two days she was there, her arms pulled behind her, her feet up out of the water and together. Law enforcement cannot locate the cutting tool used to remove Julia's clothing. It's missing along with the pillowcase and other items. They know that at some point Julia was bound, her hands and feet tied. They don't know what became of the bindings or what happened to her underwear. These were also removed from the scene, perhaps stuffed into the zebra-striped pillowcase taken from her bed. Her body showed no signs of trauma, making strangulation, beating, or rape unlikely. Outside of the bathroom, on the floor, in front of the closed door, police find a pair of latex gloves. They're knotted together. When DNA analysis is performed, they learn there are two donors, both male. One profile is run through CODIS without success, the other too weak for comparison. There are no hits in the system, and the gloves don't lead to her killer. Police consider that two people could have been in the apartment at the time of Julia's death. There are two DNA profiles on the gloves, and if Julia was asphyxiated to unconsciousness, then placed in the bathtub, it would take a strong person to carry her into the bath, making it easier for two people to commit this crime, perhaps a perpetrator and an accomplice. When Julia's body is autopsied, there is no sign of rape, but seminal fluid is discovered on her body. The seminal fluid is consistent with someone who's had a vasectomy. When police look at the man in Julia's life, they know of only one who's had a vasectomy. Her stepfather, James Turnquist. The problem with viewing Turnquist as a suspect is that he has a rock-solid alibi. His wife, Kimberly, was with him all night long. She woke up to use the bathroom on at least two occasions during the night, and her husband was at home where he should be both times. Turnquist also awoke as planned around 6.30 a.m., picking up one of his workers and going to the cleaning job he expected Julia to join him at that morning. Also, the house in Monroe is 35 miles from Julia's apartment. He would have to leave the house, drive the 35 miles, attack Julia, strip her, put her in the bathtub, and then drive home without being missed. That's a long time to be gone, one would think the alibi provided by his wife would exclude him from consideration as a suspect. I've learned a lot of things doing this podcast, and this week was no exception. One of the things I learned this week while researching is that if there is no sperm in the seminal fluid, if the vasectomy sealed off the seminal vesicles completely, there is no DNA to collect. Semen, like saliva, has no DNA in it. When a mouth swab is done, they're collecting cells from the inside of your cheek. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a DNA specialist. I rely on research for my science facts. Also worth mentioning, Julia's body was in the water for 24 to 48 hours before discovery. It's possible 
that what remained on her body didn't contain DNA, and other things that may have contained DNA went down the drain when the tub was emptied. As winter ends and the Eastern Michigan students are preparing for finals or graduation, Julia's case is being worked. Additional items are coming back from the lab each week. With each bit of information, they are hopeful that a killer will be named. In April of 2013, Duval Group Investigations, a private investigation firm owned by friends of Julia's family, they offer a $10,000 cash reward for information, quote, leading to the arrest and indictment of the person or people responsible for Nicewender's death. Unfortunately, no one comes forward to name the killer and claim the money. So let's go back to Peninsular Place again, the apartment complex Julia called home. It's been in the news several times over the years. In March of 2013, there was a murder at the complex. 19-year-old Raven Lawrence was having an argument with her roommate over the roommate's boyfriend moving into the unit. When the argument became heated, Raven called her father, John Lawrence, and asked him to come get her. When he arrived, he told Raven to go to the car. She waited, but he didn't join her, so she returned to the apartment and found him on the floor, his head bashed in, blood everywhere. Lawrence did not survive the assault. The roommate of Raven Lawrence and the roommate's boyfriend were arrested and charged with his death. In January of 2015, a pizza man was robbed at gunpoint in the parking lot of Peninsular Place as he made a delivery. Eastern Michigan University Campus Police and the Ypsilanti Police have asked the complex repeatedly to increase security for their residents. But back to Julia. The summer of 2013 passes slowly for her friends and family. There is no arrest. No suspect is named. An August 2013 article in the paper is not the news anyone hoped for. The headline? Police have exhausted leads in EMU students' death. Ypsilanti Police Lieutenant Derek Gress wrote, quote, Detectives have exhausted most of the viable leads at this point. While they're still waiting on some items from the lab, the case is at a standstill. As a new group of freshmen arrive on campus, eager to begin a new chapter in their lives, Julia Nicewender's murder book sits on a shelf. Now, not for lack of effort on the part of Ypsilanti police. They were looking for a piece of evidence that was lost. When Julia's body was discovered, there was a purple rug on the floor of her bathroom. The rug appears in crime scene photos. In 2014, when Ypsilanti police detective Annette Kapek was looking at the case, she wanted that rug. She wanted the lab to process it. So she checked police inventory, but the rug wasn't on the list. Ipsy PD didn't have the rug. When Julia's family cleaned out her apartment, they moved her things into storage. Hoping to find the rug, Julia's mother, Kim, allowed police to search the storage unit but the search was not successful, and the rug remains missing. Now, I can't say when police first suspected James Turnquist was responsible for the death of his daughter, but it was in 2014 that the Ypsilanti police started to build a case against him. In the spring of 2014, an FBI profiler told the police that their perpetrator was likely known to the victim and that the perpetrator felt comfortable enough to spend some time in the apartment after the murder. 
The FBI listed her stepfather as their, quote, number one suspect and encouraged the department to look at him again. Okay, on one hand, you have a victim that is known to him, but there's a sexual component to the attack with seminal fluid left on the body. The latex gloves left at the scene, those are something Turnquist used at his cleaning business. There's no sign of forced entry, and we know that Julia would have let her stepfather into the unit. The apartment was ransacked, but items of real value, like the iPad, television, and Christmas gifts, were left behind. When James and Kimberly were brought to the police station the night Julia's body was recovered, Kim was upset, agitated, asking questions and demanding answers. Jim was quiet, reserved. At one point, he even told his wife to calm down. One of Julia's friends would tell Detective Annette Kapek that Julia had expressed concerns about her stepdad, saying that he was sexually inappropriate with her. But when the friend was questioned again by police months later, she denied ever saying those things. Members of the Nice Wonder family, Kim's sister and mother, brought up the fact that Jim had a turbulent childhood, experiencing abuse and homelessness. On the other hand, what motive does Turnquist have to kill his stepdaughter? She's no longer living at home. She's off on her own attending college. Julia had a good relationship with him, even helping out at his cleaning business. She was also close with her sister, Jim's daughter. As to his behavior at the police station, it's hard to know how someone will react when faced with a crisis of this magnitude. Perhaps he was trying to be strong for his wife, or maybe he was in shock. The latex gloves found in Julia's suite were similar to what Jim uses at work, but lots of people use latex gloves at work. You can buy them almost anywhere. And Jim's turbulent childhood doesn't mean he assaulted and murdered his stepdaughter, a girl that called him dad. Also, his wife Kimberly provided an alibi for him from the get-go. He was home in bed, and she woke during the night to use the restroom, finding Jim right where he should be. Turnquist agreed to take a polygraph. He would end up taking two and passing both of them. Of course, I'm skeptical of polygraphs, so take that for what it's worth. Turnquist passed one issued by the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department and an independently issued one coordinated by his attorney. Turnquist also voluntarily turned over his laptop computer to the police. And his DNA was not a match to the sample found in the gloves in Julia's suite. While his computer sits in evidence at Ypsilanti PD, they finally take a look at it, going through the device carefully. Police will discover questionable images on the computer, pictures that could be child pornography. An arrest warrant is issued for James Turnquist. It's early March 2015 when police descend on the Turnquist home to arrest James, but he's gone. He's fled to the martial arts studio where he teaches and trains. He is apprehended there without incident, but police transport him to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. It's believed that he's despondent over the arrest and the circumstances of the arrest. They wanted to make sure he wouldn't self-harm. Turnquist is held in the Monroe County Jail on a $100,000 bond. The charge? One felony count of possessing child sexually abusive material. Now, 
When I saw the term child pornography followed by child sexually abusive material, I was horrified. It is repugnant and terrible, and those who deal in these materials should be dealt with harshly. However, what we learn in court is that the images in question are not of young children, but of teenage girls who could be under 18. The images are questionable, but they are not violent. When law enforcement attempts to verify the age of the women in the images, they are unable to find anything definitive. After Turnquist's arrest, Child Protective Services becomes involved, wanting to know if Madison Turnquist is safe in her own home. While her father is out on bail, he's not allowed to see his daughter. The day after Turnquist is arrested, his mother-in-law, Rose Nyswender, takes out a personal protection order against him, saying that he threatened to, quote, take her out, and that he blames her for police investigating him. She also accused Turnquist of having a short temper after Julia's death, and that his drinking increased. If you've listened to the show before, I try not to editorialize, but none of his behavior surprises me. I'd be irritable if my stepchild was murdered. I would probably drink more as well. People deal differently with grief. When James Turnquist is arrested on charges unrelated to Julia's death, the Duvall group rescinds the $10,000 reward, saying the money is better spent elsewhere. Turnquist's trial is set for September 15, 2015. However, a mistrial is declared when Turnquist's attorney, Paul Stabline, is not provided with a key search warrant and prosecutors hold on to other materials until the morning of the trial. The second trial held a week later, proceeds as planned. Turnquist's attorney reveals that the images found on his computer, the ones that were questionable and thought to be child pornography, came from the computer's temporary internet files, meaning they could have come from a pop-up. When the photos are examined, it could not be determined if the women in the pictures were of age. After a trial that lasts less than a day and jury deliberations of less than an hour, Turnquist is acquitted. James and his wife spoke to the press after the acquittal. And it, you know, it shows a, a part of, the, of our peers. We'll just prove that right there today. I'm excited to have my husband back. And for I don't think that this should ever gone this far. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an, uh, an outwardly emotional individual. So what you see right now, that's that's who I am. Do I smile? Yeah, I smile. Do I feel good? Yeah, I feel good. But there's been a lot of damage done, and it's going to take a long time to recover from that. Um, it, there are some things that I probably never will, nor will my family recover from, but it is what it is. And uh, my, my goal is to, is to move forward and do what I have to do to take care of my family. Police still look for the person who asphyxiated Julia, put her body in the tub, and ransacked her apartment, leaving behind her purse, wallet, iPad, and other valuables. They're back to where they were at the end of 2013. Leads are exhausted. Suspects are scarce. Today, almost two years after Turnquist's trial, Julia Nicewender's case is open and active. As leads come in, they are investigated. If you have information about the murder of Julia Nicewender, please contact the Ypsilanti police at 
1-800-482-9847. Before we wrap up a couple of housekeeping items, there will be no new episode next week. I'm taking a break before releasing the last of the Back to School series. But you should listen to my friend Joel over at This Week in True Crime History. I make a guest appearance on his episode coming out the week of August 28th. That's This Week in True Crime History. Please visit our sponsors. Check out the new podcast, Deliberations. They take you inside the jury room of a high-profile trial. Find Deliberations on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Also, ModCloth. Get your style on in sizes extra, extra small to 4X at modcloth.com and enter promo code GONE at checkout to get 30% off your order of $100 or more. If you have not had a chance to leave a review for the show, please join Mumsy, Ty-Fi, maybe, T-Y-P-H, Bybee Blue, Janelle Delano XO, Honor Old Glory, Reasonable Serial Fan, and Sasha917. Thank you. Your five-star reviews help others find the podcast and discover the cases covered here. If you have comments, suggestions, or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic for the show, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can also find the show on Twitter at alreadygonepod. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Mm-hmm.